bosses are powerful forces in our lives. And we need to remember that. And we need to have better bosses. You might be a great boss already. You could be better. You might be a rubbish boss. You can certainly be better. You know, there is no formula. And I've landed on three things. And one, a great manager makes great decisions. Two, a great manager is great with people. And three, a great manager is creative and innovative. That's Henry Engelhart. He's the co-founder and former CEO of Admiral Group, one of Britain's most valuable companies, currently valued at £7 billion. Fun fact, it's also the only FTSE 100 company in Wales. If you're not familiar with them, they're the company behind Confuse.com, Compare.com, Admiral Insurance, Bell Insurance, Elephant Insurance, Diamond Insurance and Vago Insurance. Yeah, lots of insurance, basically. His first book, Think, Lead, Succeed, The Admiral Way, was released in January 2021, and now he's back with a follow-up. Be a better boss. Learn to build great teams and lead any organization to success. Insurance might seem like a dull subject. In fact, Henry thought the same thing when he first got involved in the industry, which is quite funny. But like our Lemonade episode, which is one of my favorite ever interviews on Secret Leaders, I loved recording this because Henry is a great talker who wraps valuable lessons in personal stories. I could have chatted to him all day long, and I think you're going to find something quite infectious about him and his energy. This is also one of the most unique and unusual founding stories I've ever heard on the show. It took me by surprise. You're going to get a lot from this episode. Henry grabs life and has done so ever since his first job as a teenager. Started working when I was 13. It was a place called Poochie's. And it was a real good lesson in, in uh, as, as someone, I mean, I didn't realize it was a good lesson then. Um, I was just interested in the one $1.65 an hour that I was earning. But it was um, a hot dog uh, hamburger place, a little little shack, very small place. And up the road, up the, the, the strip mall, a little ways, was a very big Burger King with a lovely parking lot. And yet Poochie's killed it. I mean, they had lines out the door all the time because they did everything really first class. You know, the beef came from the local butcher. We blanched our own French fries and we charged a bit more, which also hit a, a positive tone with people who didn't want to feel guilty about, you know, taking the kids out to Burger King for dinner kind of thing. But Poochie's, everybody likes it and it's good for you because it was, you know, the beef from a butcher shop, etc. The guy who started it was a jeweler and he started it part-time and then he gave up being a jeweler and a couple of years later he had a big house in the suburbs with a swimming pool he did rather well but a great lesson in, in quality I, I guess it's rare that people uh focus so clearly on an early memory of the first place they worked and you're speaking so fondly already i'm imagining it really actually hit a tone for you well it was great food and i i ate a lot of it um but process was another thing because we had to serve these customers in a hurry so where's the the, the piccalilli in comparison to the tomatoes and how quickly can you get to the to the french fries and scoop them into a you know a bag and so forth and still do it with a smile on your face and so uh, it was a, it was a good study in 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 process and i wouldn't say because later on i worked for mcdonald's on the champs elysees actually in, in paris and there you know that's process on steroids everything was absolutely regimented we were kind of figuring it out on the go and, you know, we would move things around uh, to, to suit ourselves. And was your uh, was your love for entrepreneurship that followed? Did that come from Poochie's then? Well, I, you know, I, it, it was just kind of there. I, I wouldn't say that I ever set out to be an entrepreneur. 
I walked into it gladly, but I ended up in startup businesses or, or self-owned businesses, you know, management-owned businesses quite a lot. When I was in high school, after, you know, after school and on weekends, I worked for a kind of a discount golf supply store. And then my father, that was an interesting experience. I worked for him a couple of summers. He had a business, it grew to, the, the most was about 30 employees. I realized working for him why it could never be a big business. Very difficult business, wholesale meats because it's sold by weight. And the longer the meat is hanging and not being sold, it dehydrates and loses weight. So of course you're getting, you know, you're buying it at X dollars per pound and selling it for X plus Y, but if it's being dehydrated, you have less to sell. So moving it as quickly as possible was key. And he could do that. Oh, he was an incredible salesperson, buyer and seller, unmatched. But his management style was management by screaming. Nobody ever did anything right in that place. He just screamed all day long and corrected people. Didn't matter how long they worked for him, didn't matter what they did. He was just always yelling. So it killed off innovation. He had to do everything. He had to make all the decisions, which is how he wanted it in, in, a, in a backwards kind of way. But it meant the business could never be big. It could only be a small business. It could only be as big as he could reach. And this was something I saw at the time. And, you know, when I did start to run my own departments and eventually a company, you know, I realized I've got to step back. I've got to let other people do things. Otherwise, this business is going to be small. And I don't want a small business. I want a big business. So you do learn from all your experiences. I think that's one of the main learnings I had from all my experiences. You learn from all your experiences. You may not learn at the moment, but you look back and think about it and you say, yeah, that one taught me this and that one taught me that. And that's how you, you grow and, and help yourself to be better. I'm just curious about your, uh, your dad. So very shouty in management style. What about as a parent? Well, didn't see much of him. He was gone by the time we woke up in the morning. He'd come home at night just in time because he had to do everything. He was the last one out the door. Um, after making all the sales calls and checking everything was all right, we would see him enough to say goodnight. He worked all almost all day Saturdays uh, doing sales for Monday morning, and we met. We saw him on Sundays. He was a tough guy to get along with sometimes. Good days and bad days, I'd say. And then after after your formative years, so working in different businesses, going through school, what did you do next? I studied journalism, radio, TV, and film at university, and I wanted to be a journalist. In fact. Uh, when people ask me what was my greatest mistake, it's an interesting story in that uh, just before my senior, my last year of university, the head of the radio, TV, and film department called me and said, we're setting up, setting up a special class uh, of directing, and we'd like you to be in it. And I said, uh, I'm doing a journalism thesis. I really won't have time, so I can't do it. And in the end, the journalism thesis was a waste of time. I, I only looked back very soon and wished I had kind of put my blinkers aside and taken that class. What I look back and, and realize was the real mistake was that I made the decision all by myself without asking anybody, without talking to anybody. I just made the decision. You need to talk to people. Making decisions by yourself in life and in business is dangerous. And if you just talk to somebody, I'm sure somebody would have said to me, well, you're sure the journalism thesis is going to be that valuable? And isn't this a fantastic opportunity? And couldn't you maybe do them both? Or... Who knows what they would have said? So that was a, in retrospect, it was a great lesson learned. In retrospect, too, it was a bit of a mistake. Okay, fair enough. Things turned out all right. Thanks. I left the U.S. one week after I graduated university and went to France. Um, yes, uh, I was uh, 
chasing a woman. And the woman and I have been married more than 40 years now. She lived in Chicago for a bit. We lived in France a bit. And we ended up in the UK because the UK was our compromise. We speak English. We get American football on Sunday nights. And we're a hop, skip, and a jump from Paris. And uh, so uh, that's when I worked at McDonald's on the Champs-Élysées. I did some traveling. I worked for a couple months on a kibbutz in Israel, picking grapefruits and things like that, which was which was fun. Came back to try and get a journalism job, and there were no jobs going. And so I started as a runner on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which is a futures trading exchange in the day, the days when they had uh, the pits and you know, the traders calling out the trades and jostling with each other to get their, their trades in. And basically, I wore a gold jacket and a phone guy would hold up a piece of paper. I would grab the piece of paper. I would take it to the appropriate trading pit, give it to somebody else. Somebody would fulfill the order. They'd scribble a few things on the paper, hand it back to me, and I would take it back as quickly as I could to the phone guy. That's what my college education paid for, was running back and forth between uh, the phone guy and the, and the trading pits. They were just starting up a discount futures trading business. Again, an entrepreneurial venture within a, an entrepreneurial venture within this firm. And I was on the ground floor of that. And I did the customer bit. And then I took over sales department. And then I took over marketing and sales. And then I became a senior vice president. And this thing was growing like poxy. You know, it was just fantastic. And, and it was a great education. So I ended up there six years before I, before I pushed on. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So you've spent your 20s very, very well. You've selected, even though you have some regrets, you know, just to sort of stop and reflect there, do you have some advice for people who may feel like they've actually missed the opportunity of their lifetime? How could they do what you do? Because you move through the ranks quickly. 
you know, uh, when I was doing uh, welcome talks at Admiral and I, I did welcome talks to all the new starters for uh, 20 some odd years, meeting 25,000 people along the way. And one thing I'd ask them is, do they have any talent, any talent? You know, I'm not looking for Olympic gold, but do they have any talent? And by and large, most of them would raise their hand. Uh, those that didn't, I, I questioned our, uh, our recruitment policy. Uh, but then I would ask them, what are they doing to make the most of their talent? Not what is being to them, done to them, at them, with them, for them, but what are they doing? And I'd ask these kinds of people the same thing. What are you doing to make the most of your natural ability? Because I do believe we all have natural ability. And it's not, oh, I go to work every day. Well, that's not enough. Are you reading? Are you looking, uh, listening to podcasts? Are you talking to people? Are you learning something every day to take yourself forward? And that's what I'd highly recommend people do. And not to give up, you know, just just stay, put your head down and do the best you can. End of the day, if your firm is reasonable, that's what will get you noticed. That's what happened to me. It wasn't that I had any career path in this uh, in this futures firm. I just was doing a really good job and doing really interesting new things. I mean, they, they this was in the days that we were just, we still had punch cards for computerization. I mean, you know, that's how old this uh, this story goes, and. Uh, and, you know, I would collect information on customers and I quickly realized that actually, you know, kind of whatever, 60 percent of our business was being done by uh, the, 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 you know, the busiest 10 percent of our customers. And did we contact them? Did we do anything special for them? And, and of course, we hadn't because nobody had ever even thought of doing that before. So taking some initiative, not feeling like you're blinkered or blocked, just do things. And people will take notice. So how did you get into startups? Well, that, that one was a startup, an entrepreneurial startup. And, you know, just I was just in the right place at the right time. But then after I did an MBA, and the MBA was very valuable because I learned a little bit about everything. Strategy, accounting, finance, marketing, process, all these different aspects of, of business. And I learned a little bit about all of them. And I became a management consultant because that's the only job offer I had out of the MBA program. So I took it. Had a young family already and, and needed needed to have a job. But I didn't like being a consultant. Just, you know, maybe it was the firm, whatever. It just wasn't for me. So I answered an ad for a company that hadn't started yet, didn't have a name, and it said financial services. And I called up to get the interview. And I remember asking the lady and said, well, which financial services is it exactly? And she sounded like she wanted to uh, go under the table and hide. She said, well, it's car insurance. And I was at a conference, I remember distinctly, and I took the phone away from my ear and I looked at it and I thought, oh no, what could be more boring than car insurance? But I really didn't like being a management consultant. So I went for the job, got the job, named Churchill Churchill. Uh, I joined in November of 88 and Churchill launched on the 19th of June, 89. Um, I took over management of the sales staff and did that for a couple of years until somebody knocked on the door, a headhunter knocked on the door and said, somebody else is starting one up looking for a CEO. Would I be interested? Or managing director, we called it then. And uh, I said, sure would. Off I went to set up what became Admiral Group. Right place, right time. But I am attracted to building businesses. There, are, it's, it's interesting. First of all, hugely different skills in preparing and starting a business to running a business. And then again, to running a big business. And I'm fortunate enough to have been able to gravitate from one level to the next to the next. So going back to the very early days of Admiral, like what was your vision? Like how did you set it out and how did you think about your your culture and your people? I learned from a, quite a few negative 
cultures. I learned that management by hypocrisy is a killer. I learned that many, many offices try and executives try and divide their workforce. They Maybe not consciously, but things like company cars and, and uh, executive dining rooms. They do nothing but divide the workforce. I worked for somebody once where all the managers had chairs with arms and everybody else had chairs without arms. And one day, one of the chairs with arms went missing. We find that two days later and the arms had been bent out of shape. You know, businesses have enough problems with competition and consumer behavior and regulation and supply chains and partners and stakeholders and blah, blah, blah. Why divide your workforce? So absolutely, that was at the forefront of developing Advil. No company dining room, no company cars. In fact, we we eventually went, and one of the things I'm most proud of is there are no offices, even today, in Admiral Group. You go to Delhi, you go to Richmond, Virginia, you go to Rome, you go to Swansea, you go to Newport, you go to Cardiff, wherever it is. There are no corporate, there are no management offices. There are meeting rooms, but nobody's got an office because walls stop communication. And why would you do that? Why don't you want to communicate with people? Why don't you want to be seen? So all of these things developed over time. Culture is a living organism. It develops and grows. It's constantly evolving. But there were some basic things from the beginning. So for instance, we were a business plan team. We were just five of us writing that business plan. And I got the other four together. We had a small round table in this you know shabby little office we were in. I got them all together and I said, look, I expect to have a good family life. And I expect to have a successful business career. And I do not believe the two are mutually exclusive. I will work hard. I'm sure there will be sometimes I work really long hours, but by and large, I intend to have breakfast in the morning with my family and dinner with my family in the evening. And that, you know, was one of the tenets of, of Admiral's culture. If it's good for me, it's good for everybody else. Because that's another thing I learned along the way is you cannot really have two sets of rules. Everything I did and looked at, you know, I thought to myself, if somebody working for me brought me that expense or did such and such, would I say, yeah, great? Or would I say, no, that's not allowed? Well, if it's not allowed for them, it's not allowed for me. Full stop. You, you know, you cannot be a, a hypocrite and, and expect to be a successful manager. And yet most businesses lay the traps for hypocrisy along the way, perks and things for, for moving up in an organization. And if you just think about the effect your bosses have had on you, then you can start to get a feel for it. It's funny you say it, because I, I do think it's one of the underestimated and underappreciated benefits of starting entrepreneurship after a few jobs. You know, in my experience, the benefit that I had working in so many jobs, you know, I worked in a call center selling insurance, you'll be pleased to know. It wasn't a bad job. It was an okay job. It's quite difficult, as you probably are aware, like Ooh. selling insurance cold at night after school until 11 Oof. p.m., just calling random cold cold calling off lists that they gave us. Oh, cold calling is brutal. Cold calling is so hard and brutal. And I got told no 99 times a night until I got that 100th yes. But at 16, I became the best person there. I won uh, like all the bonuses, top sales reports, etc., etc. because I was just persistent. I just refused to let it get me down. And I thought it was great practice, sort of turn it into my own game. And then I worked in another business a few years later in publishing. And we worked for a guy who made us, it was brutal. He made us all day long, everyone, stand up and sell on our feet. And no one was allowed to sit down the entire day until they'd made 
sale, like four sales, I think it was, but it was quite hard. It was B2B media sales for like a travel niche business magazine. No one was allowed to sit down. The manager was sitting down all day long having calls, having food. We weren't allowed to have anything at our desk either until lunch. And it was just so obviously absurd. Do you know what I mean? Like there was just no part of it that felt reasonable. And so everyone disliked this manager. No one respected them. Everyone ended up leaving, of course. And you see that, and it doesn't take long to extrapolate a lesson out of it. You just think if you treat your people badly like that and you are a hypocrite, they won't trust you and respect you and stay with you. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we, we came, we, we, we turned it around into a, a positive statement, which is if, if people like what they do, they'll do it better. And if they do it better, you win because you'll get better results. So, you know, our culture was not altruistic. Let's have a great culture because we're great, great people. Our culture was how do we get a better result? And that's hugely important to remember is that it's about economic results for a business because what good is it if you say, oh, we have a fabulous culture and we had it right up until the time we went out of business. No value in that. We want to employ more people and give them the, the good culture. So we have to have good results. You can whip people and get them to do things for short periods. But we also want this, you know, business is a long run. You know, it's not like a sports season, which has a, a definite end, and then you rest a bit and you start again. Business goes on and on and on and on. And we want people, because we know that experience is valuable, we want them to stay with what they do. And if you, they don't like their job, very difficult to go home, flick a switch, and be a happy camper at home. So not only have we ruined their day at work, we probably ruin their home life as well. And then they leave just at the time we've got them trained up. So we go the other way. Let's go out of our way to make Admiral a place people like. And if they like what they do, they'll do it better. And it is paid off big time for, for Admiral. So talk to me about Admiral's strategy. Like you started it when? So I was hired by a managing agency at Lloyd's of London in the middle of 1991 to set up and run what's become Admiral. And they, they were looking at this direct car insurance thing, which is quite new at the time, because they needed sterling cash flow. They're, they were doing a lot of business of different insurance risks in the US, but there's a trust fund in New York, and the Americans keep the money there to make sure that these insurers can pay claims. And yet their expenses were in sterling in the UK. So you know eventually they get the profits home, but they need some sterling cash flow. In the meantime, car insurance provides good cash flow. And they looked at the market and thought this new direct thing, direct line was a few years old. Churchill is a couple of years old. There was GA one to one. There was about you know four or five at the time. And they thought that's the way to go. So they recruited me and I joined. They gave me an IT manager and then I hired three other people. So there were five of us. We wrote the business plan, got it approved. And we, on April 1st, 1992, we started spending money. You know, we launched on January 2nd, 1993 at 9 a.m., 9 a.m. because it was a Saturday. So we've been trading for 30 years and five months and some days. Um, who's counting? And it's been it's been good. We got off to a great start. We did we did some clever things at the beginning. We also got the benefit of uh, an insurance market where prices were surging. It was all insurances. There was a mortgage indemnity problem. There was hurricanes from the late 80s that um, still were being sorted out. Car insurance was was a terrible market, so prices were going way up. We didn't have any any liabilities from the past, and we were able to get business profitably almost from the, from day one. But we did do something very clever because we were the seventh direct response insurer into the market. So 
the idea of you always have to be first, I say no. In fact, I'd much rather prefer let other people pave the roads and we drive behind. And that helped us a lot. Now, the other six were all going for the good driver market, suburban, small car, low premiums, good drivers. We said, well, you know, we're going to struggle to compete on the economics with Direct Line and Churchill and the others that had started a few years before if we go after that market. But what if we went after higher premium business? Not extreme, but younger drivers, bigger cars, more city dwellers, if the average premium in the market was 300, our average premium was 425. Yeah. And there were some premiums up at a thousand. So, you know, we weren't extreme, but well above the average. And that turned out to be a gold mine because A, those people were shopping more. They had more to gain. They're probably, if they're younger drivers, were in stages of their lives where 20 quid meant a lot rather than if you're uh, an older driver paying a 300 pound premium. 20 quid, yeah, you know, maybe. So they shopped a lot more, easy to switch. They are riskier. They do make more claims, but we figured out how to rate them because within big broad brush of young drivers, there are good young drivers and less good young drivers. And we figured out um, how to find the good ones. And we are still um, higher average premium, even though we've got millions of customers now. But that's been the basis of our, our success for 30 years. The business got off to a flying start. It started to turn down again in 95. Meanwhile, one of the things I negotiated when I joined was an equity stake for myself and my management team. And we had 20% of the equity. But the parent company kind of figured out that that actually could be very valuable. And they sort of tried to get it back from us. So we ended up going down a legal route and we had lawyers and they had lawyers. And we put the case in front of a, a Queen's counsel who said very calmly, it looks like Admiral does the work and it's in the Admiral name and the customers are with Admiral. And so the value is with Admiral. And we won the day. Our shares were, were, were worth something. And meanwhile, that company got bought out. Then the company that bought them out got bought out. We went further and further down the food chain. Um, the ultimate parent was a Bermudan reinsurance company that said, we don't do a thousand people in Cardiff selling car insurance. So they put us up for sale. 1998, a very big American company bid 111 pounds for us. We were going through with the deal. At their end, it all fell apart. Nothing to do with us, but at their end, we got pulled off the market. Car insurance was in trouble in 98. In 99, it was five times worse. The parent company put us back up for sale. Nobody wanted to buy us. We convinced one venture capital company that what we were doing was interesting. We teamed up with some reinsurers to make the model a very uh, low uh, capital model, a capital light model that produced a lot of profit. We convinced them and together we bought the business out. And that was at the very end of 1999. Um, we floated the business in September 23rd, 2004 at uh, £2.75 a share. By then, everybody in Admiral Group was a shareholder, so everybody got something. 1,400 members of staff split up £56 million the day we floated, and we've kind of never looked back. Everybody is still a shareholder. That's still part of the ethos. Why? We want our people to feel like they own part of the company. Therefore, the best thing to do, give them part of the company to own. And I don't know why more people don't emulate that model. In fact, we've had competitors, insurance investors will ask us, why don't your competitors copy your culture? I'd say that's not a good question for me. It's a question for them. 
but but they can, you know, we're not doing, we're not secret about it. Here's what we do. And yet when some of them floated years after our float, they did not go down the route of making sure every member of staff had part of the company. I don't know why, but it makes a big difference. People at Admiral really do care. And I tell you, if you walk around the place and you, you whisper, what's the share price? You'll get 17 answers within about three seconds. Everybody knows. Um, so it's been a very powerful model for us. But we did have real struggles within the fight with the parent company. It was also a fight with some disaffected employees that we had to move on. And there was a three-way battle. It was a real mess. We used to go out on the street to make some of our phone calls in a phone booth because we were concerned that our phones were being tapped. So, you know, that's how bad it got. This is exceptionally unique. And we don't hear this. We don't hear this kind of story often. I bet it goes on more, more than we know. I want to just reflect back to you owned 20% of the business between you and your parent company presumably felt that that was greedy and you felt that it's, I mean, more than reasonable, naturally. Do you think that there's something in this moment where you've got two parties who ultimately feel like uh, there's a difference, a mismatch between what's fair and what's not fair in terms of motivation, doing the work and reward, which helped you shape your thinking later for everyone becoming a shareholder? It wasn't quite that. Before I joined, I actually negotiated, it was a 25% stake for me and my management team. And Lloyd's in London, they're used to this profit sharing and ownership and stuff. So they said, okay. And then we, early on, we they renegotiated it down to 20. But they still didn't understand or believe that it was going to be worth a lot. And it was only a few years in that they started to realize, whoa, that could be a lot of value we've just kind of given to the management team. And so it, it wasn't that they felt it was un, un, that the deal was done unfairly because they had been party to the deal. They just feel that, whoa, if, you know, if we could get that back, it would be better. <laughs> but, but we did have to fight for our right to keep and our, our shareholding and that the value resided in the shareholding of Admiral as opposed to the, share, uh, the value residing in the underwriting entities that were just providing capital. No, we were doing well. We were we were never worse than break even in a market that was losing 20, 25p in the pound. So uh, there's something called the combined ratio, which is your claims expenses and your other expenses combined. And the market was running a combined ratio of about 125, which meant for every pound in, 125 was going out. Now, they did earn some interest on that. And in the day, they might have earned 8% or something. It's still a pretty awful result. And we were break even. And we presented our model to the reinsurers. This was key to, to our future. And they liked it. They liked the fact that they thought we could basically underwrite better than our competitors and produce underwriting results that were good. But we were also selling other products and services to our customers. And we kept that 100%. Meanwhile, if we made money for the reinsurers, we got part of that back in what's called profit commission. So we were putting up 25% of the capital and we were getting 70% of the profits. And now, I mean, I, we probably get more. The reinsurers did rather well. Don't, don't be worried. They made, they made a lot of money off of it. It was a great partnership. It is a great partnership. But it did propel us from having to raise a lot of capital. Because the venture capital company came in. It's a, it's a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? The last thing they want is to put up capital. <laughs> but they were brilliant, too because they took the time and trouble to understand the model and provide the necessary capital to wrestle it away from the previous owner. And then our results were stunning. We typically would outperform the market 
by 20 to 30 points. And even today, we're still far better than the market average in terms of combined ratio. So, you know, that's what's led to Admiral having a valuation far above a multiple, far above its, uh, its peer group. And what is the, the, model, the valuation at the moment, or roughly? Yeah, we're roughly about 7 billion at the moment. Very casual number. It's just 7 billion, Henry. Just 7 billion. Well, we've been as high as 10, but we, we've also paid about 3 to 4 billion in dividends in that period. Um, again, another simple philosophy. We feel if management teams have a lot of cash sloshing around, they do silly things with it. So we give it back to our shareholders and let them do silly things with it. We don't starve our businesses, but we don't want to be sitting there going, uh-oh, we better make use of this capital, otherwise we'll lose it. Or, you know, that's when management teams tend to go uh, off the rails a bit. You, uh, you're accredited for building the first price comparison website in the UK as well. I'm wondering how much, well, how much you'd like to talk about that story as well, if you'd like to. But also, I'm interested in, you know, your perspective on innovation, because to outperform the market in, like you said, a commodity, you've got to be doing some things differently. Oh, absolutely. I can wax lyrical on that. Innovation is absolutely key. And we were doing things from the get-go that were new and different. Very, very interesting thing. It's a, it's a bit of a story, but our 10-month policy. So back in the day, this is pre-internet. Uh, somebody would shop around. They'd make four phone calls. They'd get four prices. They'd buy one policy. And the other three just go away. A year later, they're going to get a letter from the other three companies. We're better this year. Here's our price this year. Try us this year. Whatever. We did it. Everybody did it. It was called a remail campaign. So we were sitting around. David uh, Stevens and myself, he was the one of the founding five, became the chief executive when I stepped down. He's now semi-retired as well. And we're sitting around... Um, the office trying to figure out how do we get our customers off these other companies' remail campaigns. And we start thinking, well, what if we did a 15-month policy? Well, then the, the sticker price is bigger. If they're a bad risk, we've got them for 15 months, not 12. You know, it's not so great. Well, what if we go the other way? What about a 10-month policy? Then we only underwrite them for 10 months. If they get a letter, it's going to be, you know, after they've renewed with us, or even if they shop around again, the next year, the letter would be off kilter again. And uh, we get to underwrite more quickly and we get to learn more about the customer in 10 months. And we thought, okay, well, what's in it for the customer? And we thought, well, most of our customers have, or a lot of them have zero or one year bonus. What if we move them up the bonus scale in 10 months rather than 12? So if you're on zero and you can move up in 10, 10, 10, so in 30 months, you're on three rather than 36. And people love this idea. In its heyday, over 50% of our new business was coming in 10-month policies. The renewal rates were better. The underwriting was better. It, it, was, it was a real way to propel us into the future. Nobody's ever copied that. Don't ask me why. Another one early on, uh, and this was heresy in the insurance industry. Typically in the insurance industry, then, one brand. You had your brand. You plowed your money into the brand. In its day, AXA was buying up businesses all over the world. And the first thing they do would be to come in and change the name to AXA. They bought some good branding, some 125-year-old brand names in the UK, and immediately killed off the old names and rebadged them AXA. Well, we had the idea to bring out some new brands. And this was based on the fact that we were plowing money into one brand. Let's break the world into two simple pieces. Advertising-wise, Yellow Pages and TV. Right? So Yellow Pages was the Google of its day. It charged by the size of the ad you put in, didn't matter what the product was. You know, there might be, you know, two pages of ads for pianos, 
but there were like 90 pages of ads for car insurance because people would use yellow pages to find their car insurance. And it was cheap as chips in terms of our response rates. But you're limited to how many ads you can put in with one brand. And then you moved on to TV, which was interesting, but much more expensive. And kind of the more you did, the more expensive it got. So we said, let's create some new brands. In particular, we had the idea of Diamond, a brand for women, because women associate with themselves as drivers. So we would run ads that said cheaper car insurance for Admiral, and for Diamond, it would be cheaper car insurance for women. And amazingly, we were getting a whole new audience. People who wouldn't respond to car insurance, cheaper car insurance were responding to cheaper car insurance for women. But it was heresy in the industry. Now, if you look in other industries, if you go look at a big shop and, and you look at shampoos, you'll see shelf after shelf of shampoos. There's curly hair and blonde and bell people and, you know, whatever. There's tons of different types of shampoos, right? But if you turn around, you'll see it's all L'Oreal or Unilever or Procter & Gamble, right? Very few manufacturers of all these different why do they do that? Why don't they create one all-singing, all-dancing shampoo? Shelf space. The more different shampoos, they get yay amount of shelf space, yay amount of shelf space, they get more shelf space. Well, Yellow Pages was our shelf. The more brands we had, the more shelf space we got. The lower cost leads came in in droves. We reduced our TV expenditure, upped our expenditure in Yellow Pages. Bob's your uncle. We, we, we off to the races. So that was innovation in this industry. A lot of Firms did copy that. Now there's, you know, there's 150 brands for car insurance. There might be only 35 manufacturers. So when price comparison, well, price comparison didn't really come around. We saw some software that was the two guys were making. There was a sales guy and the tech guy. The tech guy had made this this uh, spider that could go in and and get prices from other companies. So he was he was selling it as a pricing tool that our pricing department would use to facilitate our understanding what other companies were charging. And we looked at it and we thought, well, that's interesting, but it really has a consumer possibility, doesn't it? Where consumers, instead of spending all the Saturday afternoon calling place after place after place, answering the same questions time and time and time again, could go in once and get all their prices back. That's really what would be valuable. And we couldn't come, we tried to buy this company and it didn't happen. We couldn't, we couldn't do a deal. And some of our own programmers came forward and said, we can do this. We can set one up for you, a prototype in one week. We said, okay, if you can do it in one week, we'll call off all the sales negotiations, the purchase negotiations are going. In the end, it took them eight days. They did a, a simple track of a quote through direct line. Said, wow, okay, let's do it. It took about six or eight months before they got the whole sing thing singing and dancing, but it took off like a rocket. It was amazing. It was incredible. Another innovation is Elephant Co. UK. In its day, and it was an all-singing, all-dancing internet insurer. Well, that's what it, it looked like. You could hardly find a phone number. It was Elephant Co. UK. And it's interesting, the name, because I tested the name Elephant when I was doing name testing for Churchill and, again, for Admiral. And at the time, ooh, sounds too new. People didn't want a new-sounding insurance company. They wanted something that sounded like they'd been around a lot. And Admiral fit the bill. It was a, a, a little bit of a side story. So uh, one time we get a letter from somebody, and I, this was kind of the end of our first year. And the guy said, uh, blah, 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 this was, and I've been your customer for now for almost a decade, da 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 And we had a laugh. We'd only been in business one year, but the name sure worked. He thought he, you know, he, he thought he, uh, this company's been around a long time. But now we're in the internet age and there's the Amazons and Yahoos and all these kind of quirky names. And Elephant fits really well for insurance. Elephant Co. UK, it's big, it's strong. 
you know, it's got an image, an icon. We like our names to have icons, admirals and diamonds and elephants. And so we, we, we introduced this without a phone number. Now, at the time, everybody was going to, we'll do both. So there was direct line with a phone number, direct line. Com. There was Admiral with a phone number, Admiral.co.uk. And we brought along one that was just Elephant Co. UK because people's perception at the time was if it's all internet, it's probably cheaper. And in many cases it was, and sometimes Elephant was too. It took off like a rocket. August 2000, when we floated the company in September 2004, so really just four years later, it was our biggest brand. It had gone past Admiral and Diamond in terms of size. Stunning success, another another great innovation. But again, we weren't setting the world on fire. We were just doing things a bit differently. And that ethos is strong throughout Admiral. You've got to do things differently and think differently. And I, I sure hope that even though the company is 10,000 strong now, that we're always thinking of out of the box a little bit differently about how to do things. So your new book has just come out, Be a Better Boss. Like, What can people expect within it? There's, there's, there's a lot of stories, as you can tell. Uh, there's something in it for everybody. You know, it is there. I'm on a bit of a mission. I think we need a world of better managers and leaders because, you know, I've seen my own kids when they've had bad managers, they're like dimmer switches on light bulbs being turned down. My daughter took a job in an industry she was interested in, but the boss, he was a bit, you know, a bit goey. He was, he was a, I uh, always had to prove he was the smartest guy in the room. He, he would email or text anytime, weekends, day, night, blah, blah, blah. And she went from bright and bubbly to nervous and anxious and, and tense. And, you know, her boyfriend said it was like a dimmer switch of a light bulb being turned down. Nine months was all she lasted. She took a 30% pay cut to go somewhere else. Far better management. Whoosh. Dimmer, dimmer switch up. She's, she's now gotten promotions. She's way past where she would have been. And she's learning a lot. And she's bright and energetic. And it's, it's great to see her back to the way she was. And that's because she went from bad bo- having a bad boss to having a good boss. And, and bosses are powerful forces in our lives. And we need to remember that. And we need to have better bosses. So that this book, something in it for everybody to become a better boss. You might be a great boss already. You can be better. You might be a rubbish boss. You can certainly be better. So there's a lot in it. Um, and I think everybody will get something from the book. And some people will get a lot from the book. I've done a lot of thinking, uh, trying to understand what makes a great leader manager. What knits this together? Because there is no great, you know, there is no formula. And I've landed on three things. And so it's a whole section on these three things. And one, a great manager makes great decisions. Two, a great manager is great with people. And three, a great manager is creative and innovative. Think, how can we do things? What does our customer want? You know, the customer is always at the top of the organization. They make the cash register ring. They pay all the bills. The customer, the customer, the customer. That's where the focus is. And then you start to think, well, the customer's at the top. Who's next? Well, anybody who has a touch on a customer, it can be a guy writing IT code for the for the website. It can be somebody on the phones. It can be a salesperson in person, whatever. Whoever has a touch on the customer, they're next in importance. And where's the CEO? At the bottom. Well, almost at the bottom. The board of directors is below. And that's the way you have to see the world. I am here to help everybody in our company do better. That's got to be, always got to be your focus. 
Amazing. Henry, it's been uh, highly invigorating and motivating to speak to you. And I've only done it remotely for a couple of hours. I can only imagine what you're actually like to work with. Very infectious. I guess I'd love you to just leave our listeners with one piece of advice that they can take into their careers on how to be a better leader. You know, I'm a big believer in teams. The team, the team, the team. The power of the team is invariably greater than the power of any single individual. And this lesson really came home for me the first day of my MBA program. So uh, I did an MBA at a very good school. NCI is highly rated. There were, in my day, there were 172 MBA candidates. On the first day of class, they're all keen as mustard to prove that they're the smartest of the smart. The night before the first day of class, we got our first assignment. Very simple, the Canadian Arctic Survival Test. There's a crash of a small plane in the Arctic of Canada. I don't know why Canada. And you rescue 16 items from the plane. Rank order the items in order of importance. Is the bottle of water more important than the compass, more important than the string, etc.? Whatever. 16 items. We did this at home on our own. We go into class. We're in teams. There are no in, in, in the real world, they say four or five is the is the perfect number for a team. That's when you get the best the best output. So they put us in teams of seven or eight. And their thinking was in the in the real world, you sometimes don't get in a team of four or five. Sometimes it's a bigger team. You better be ready. Okay. They would even look at our respective CVs and they'd say, Oh, that person, I don't think they'll get along with this person. I'll put them in the same team. We're put in a team, our team we've never met before. There's eight of us, all guys. And we did. We proved dysfunctionality later on in the in the year. No problem. But at that time, we're all very friendly. We introduced ourselves. First time we're, you know, the first assignment, rank order the 16 items as a team. We do so. We go back to the Amphi. 22 teams, 172 really bright individuals. They give us the experts ranking. We score our own papers. We score our team paper. How many individuals outperform their respective team? The answer was two. 170 really bright MBA candidates on their first day of class did less well than their team. The power of the team is invariably greater than the power of any single individual. Use your teammates, talk to people, kick things around. You will almost always come up with better solutions to problems, better ways of doing things, new ways of thinking about things. It's powerful. The team, the team, the team. Henry Engelhardt, who seems like someone you'd want to work with. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and Sol Harris. It was brought together by our head of podcasts, Will Stolliman. See you next time.